Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I created Data Mesh Radio to be a resource for Data Mesh practitioners the world over. This is a weekly summary episode where I share a bit about the upcoming week's episodes and give you an extended summary for any interviews or panels that will be released during that week. It's designed to help you decide what episodes you might want to spend the full time to listen to, as interview episodes and panels are typically more than one hour long. In general, if you were running up against any challenges with Data Mesh, I'm here to help. I started a company around doing just that, Data Mesh Understanding. So get in touch if I can be of help. Check out our free community programs and things like that as well. Programming notes for the week of September 10th, 2023. As stated, we are on a new episode hiatus as I'm still recovering from, you know, a rather severe illness. This is the last week, though, before we resume new episodes. For this week, I picked another three episodes that I think people should listen to and, and reflect on. I picked specifically these for ones that are kind of foundational or really can help you um, target in on some different approaches or, or thoughts or, you know, to, to really do data mesh well. And if anyone is going to CDIQ, CDOIQ Europe this week or Big Data London next week, let me know. I would love to meet up. So on Monday, the first re-release this week is episode 48, Overcoming Obstinate Organizational Obstacles in Data Mesh with Scott Hawkins from ITV. This one I think is is a really foundational episode for me around organizational aspects of data mesh and how important it is to have this high level buy-in as well as you know the ability to rearrange people's KPIs or their OKRs their you know what they're focused on their priorities in data mesh at that high level so that the team actually has the the focus on doing the data work because otherwise you're just asking them to do additional work instead of rewarding them for doing this new data work. In general, ITV uses the enablement team model of dropping in kind of a team in a box that's going to help a domain go from, you know, not ready for data mesh to having their first data product and being able to support and maintain that and hopefully develop additional data products. And it's all dependent on what's necessary for that one domain and, you know, for their initial kind of data products. And so I think it's a really interesting model to learn from. And I think it's interesting to look at how you can do this as you move along your kind of implementation journey throughout the organization instead of just at the single um, domain level. On Wednesday, uh, one of my interviews on... (laughs) the data contracts hot button topic, which wasn't (laughs) when I was doing these. So it's kind of funny how much it exploded. But this is episode 65, What's a Data Contract Between Friends? Setting Expectations with Data Contracts. And this is with Abe Gong from Great Expectations, both the company and, and the project Great Expectations. So I've done, you know, a number of episodes on data contracts. But I think this 
episode honestly highlights a lot of the ways people are doing data contracts in a way that won't work very well in, in data mesh. You know, it's kind of, I would maybe call it even the insanity of the way people are using data contracts purely as a defensive measure. If that's all you can do, I totally get it. It's a big, big improvement. But if you can't get data producers to speak to you, it's it's great, but that's a sad state. That's not what's going to work for data mesh. And so, you know, it would be really great if people could leverage data contracts when they can, you know, when they can be so much more if you including them in the concept of a data sharing agreement, right? Where you're actually having human to human communication and not just kind of silently going and consuming from some data. Um, I'll get off my soapbox for now. On Friday, we have episode 130, Making the Data Quantum Leap, starting from the data quantum at PayPal. And this is with my partner in my roundtables, Jean-Georges Perrin. So while JGP and team's approach was different from a lot of people's out there, one really clear thing to understand is about, you know, where I'm going to be writing my book. My first book is Success Factors for Data Mesh. They had three initial target outcomes that would prove the value of data mesh. And this is far different from most people, but this is really important to establish, right? There, there's where one, faster and easier data discovery, two, easier to use the data in a governed way, and three, increase uh, data consumer trust in data. And so that was what they were looking to do to prove out data mesh in their kind of early implementation and drive value. That's what you've got to do for yourself. You got to set what's going to actually mean success for us. And that's different for every organization. You know, look for something similar. What is your minimum viable mesh? So with that, I'll shut up onto the bottom line upfront summaries for Abe's and Scott's episode. And then I had moved to the extended summary model for JGPs. So you'll get that as well. I think these are episodes that will really help you overall in understanding how to implement data mesh well. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed the other Scott H. in the data mesh community, Scott Hawkins, Principal Data Architect at ITV. I asked Scott what he wanted to talk about when he said organizational challenges and, and boy did he deliver. I'll start with the most important bit to me first as Scott really crystallized a few things on driving buy-in for me. There are three good ways to drive buy-in for the domain teams. First, at the senior level. So it trickles down as the management for the team is bought in they can help to redirect the prioritization. Number two, via a strong carrot. Solve a problem for them as kind of a quid pro quo, mutually beneficial solution type of thing. You're saying, hey, if you give us this data, we're going to help you execute on X or Y or Z. Trying to solve a sort of helpful but unrelated problem will drive lower buy-in. And number three, I think this is one that's really going to be something that people are should be leveraging, which was work on realigning the team KPIs slash OKRs with the senior leaders to actually realign those incentives. 
kind of feels obvious after it was stated because we've been talking about aligning incentives, but this was absolutely the first time I've heard it messaged anywhere near this clearly. It, it really is about making it so that the teams know that this matters and not just by going to them and telling them it matters. You go and, and you get that exec level buy-in so you can realign these incentives and you make it you put it you, you put the proof out there that this matters and that this matters to the organization there are a lot of other useful nuggets too scott views data mesh as a mechanism for change and i agree your company culture and your understanding of said culture are crucial to establishing data mesh well driving that buy in you need to ask yourself what challenges does data mesh actually address and hopefully solve for us how will it impact the business, not just our tech stack and things like that. And what does it change? Your organization might not be ready for data mesh, or a specific domain might not be ready, and that's okay. What is the organization or domain really ready to take on? ITV was in a distributed but kind of cohesive environment. Scott mentioned there were five different departments all managing content, but all had totally well, all had slightly different definitions of what content really meant. So they were all trying to work together somewhat, but it, it really wasn't working all that well. As they moved forward with their data mesh implementation, they found a quote-unquote good enough solution via a global ID. It's not perfect. There might be some overlap such as one person might have a different global ID for their online subscription versus their broadcast subscription. And ITV is a broadcaster in uh, the UK. But, you know, with this global ID, it is far better than what they were doing. And, and it allows for interoperability joins and, and joins across the data. This is a big improvement. I think this is, again, a don't let perfect be the enemy of good or done, right? Is the global ID absolutely perfect? Can it identify one person, you know, no matter what, and that person only has one ID. No. But is that really the worst thing that could happen? No. So use it and move forward. One thing working for ITV is deploying a team in a box to help domains move forward. Similar to kind of an internal consulting team that drops in to help them kind of move forward. Each situation is different, so each quote-unquote box that they are given is different. But it means domains don't feel this new wave of responsibilities without help and guidance. The team in a box is the answer to what is the most effective way to get to a viable data product. You know, you may want your teams to fully discover the way that they would uh, put out their own data products and everything becomes this very unique picture. But there are a couple of reasons why this works. One, again, is that the teams don't feel like they're being asked to do a bunch of things without the resourcing. And the second is that it helps ITV to really build common best practices internally because there's a lot of teams that are, there, there are these teams in a box that are involved with a lot of different domains and getting them to kind of see things in the same way. So there's that cohesiveness. Coming to the table with defaults has also really helped. You know, what what is a, a kind of quote unquote standard data product look like? 
On the driving buy-in, Scott recommends working with the domain managers to generate a viable carrot for the entire team. Explain to those leaders why it matters. Work with the leaders to revamp the KPIs, as mentioned earlier, if the KPIs are getting in the way of delivering a good data product. This is why that exact level buy-in is so crucial. It's pretty hard to start modifying team KPIs or OKRs without that exact level buy-in. You don't have the power to just go in and say, hey, team, we're going to modify your KPIs unless you have the power to do so. It's important to talk to teams to understand how they, the individual and the group, operate. It's crucial to developing the right path for them. Angelo Martelli mentioned some similar things on driving buy-in in his episode, in his four pillars of driving buy-in framework. Another common thread that Scott talked about is making failure an option. You can try to work with a domain, and, and if it isn't working, it's okay to move on from that domain. You don't need to get everyone on board on day one or sharing their data on day one. If you design incentives well, people will want to participate eventually. Until then, it's okay to walk away from that team if it's just not working. Overall, you're going to get a lot of really good nuggets out of this one, and I think it's going to be very, very helpful for folks, especially ones that are stuck on that buy-in issue. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Abe Gong, the co-creator of the open source data quality monitoring observability tool, Great Expectations. Abe is also the co-founder and CEO of Superconductive, which is offering Great Expectations as a service and, and pushing its development. I asked Abe to be on to talk about all things data contracts. He's one of the few people I could find was published good content on the subject prior to kind of the beginning of this year. One caveat before jumping in is that Abe is passionate about the topic and has created tooling to help address it. So try to view Abe's discussion of great expectations as an approach rather than as a commercial for specifically the great expectations project slash product. An important point that has come up in all of the conversations about data contracts on this podcast is that data contracts aren't only about the schema. If you view, view them that way, the semantics can change, but the contract will still be deemed valid. Essentially, the data is wrong, but it's failing silently. That's a bad thing. So on to the fun of data contracts. Are, are we trying to lock ourselves into serving data in the exact same way going forward? No. Or are we really trying to set a social agreement, a set of expectations, so data consumers know what they're getting and can feel safe in the reusability and repeatability, you know, that steadiness of the data products they are consuming from? Abe believes the, the latter, and I see his point after our conversation of, of that we want to really set these as, as expectations. So to define expectations here, this would include the the schema and, and some like value ranges and types in the data. So for instance, a, a column may be uh, a ranking system of one to five, and then the application team changes it to be one to 10. The schema may not be broken. It, it is still passing whole numbers, but the new range is not within expectations. 
there isn't a perfect way to share semantic expectations as well. And I don't believe there ever will be. I don't think that, that a tool can really do that. We need to fall on communication and process to really address that. To start the conversation, Abe shared some of his background experience living the pain of unexpected upstream data changes, causing data chaos and lots of work to recover from and, and adapt to. Part of where we need to get to using something like data contracts is to remove the need to recover in addition to uh, adapting and move towards just having that controlled expected adaptation. As Abe put it, while upstream changes are a breaking change for the data consumer, it wasn't a breaking change for the producer. So how do we let the, the producers really know what they're going to, if what they're going to do is going to change or break things for people downstream. At current, Abe sees the best way to not break those kind of social expectations around that, that contract uh, is via getting consumers and producers in a meeting to talk about upcoming changes and prepare, you know, something like versioning or, or just kind of working with that consumer team specifically to understand what's going to be happening. But Ape sees a world where we don't even need that meeting going forward. Kind of self-healing data consumption that automatically adapts to changes upstream where possible. I think that is a bit high in the sky thinking, but I'd love for us to get there. I'm just skeptical. Ape sees two distinct use cases in general for data contracts, or more specifically, how people are using great expectations to implement data contracts. The first is purely defensively put some validation on the data you are ingesting to prevent data that doesn't match from blowing up your own work. And then the second type is when the consuming team shares their expectations specifically with the producers. There's more of a formal agreement or, or contract with a shared set of expectations. This agreement conversation often happens when there is an upstream breaking change as kind of the factor that cuts the conversation instead of just somebody putting in the blocking to prevent those things from being an issue. Abe also mentioned something where I don't quite understand the exact impl implications here, but when talking about data contracts, there is a third constituent in the room, not just the producers and the consumers. The third constituent is the data itself. The data has a veto. Sometimes the consumers and, and producers may agree, but the data makes it hard or it would be incorrect to move forward in that one way. Again, the data has a veto. We didn't dig deeper there, but I, I think it's an interesting concept that, that people should really start to think about and, and look at more. We had an interesting discussion about push versus pull uh, on data contracts. Should the producer team create an all-encompassing contract or should we have more consumer-driven contacts? Would producer-driven contracts be too restrictive? preventing the serendipity insights data mesh aims to produce? Or as well, do they have to think about every single potential use case ahead of time? And then they're kind of in this boat of saying, we're going to do these 80 things when the consumers really only want them to serve up uh, things to allow 40 of those or 20 of those. Would consumer-driven contracts mean multiple contracts for each data product that the producer agrees to? Is that really sustainable? 
So I think in summing it up, the idea of explicit expectations around a data product that are the result of collaboration between producers and consumers sounds like where we should all head if possible. If the expectation set is only coming from the producer side, it might be overly restrictive or overly broad and kind of um, commit them to doing things that aren't of value and miss a lot of the nuance necessary to actually create that consumer trust. And exclusively consumer-driven contacts don't sound sustainable or scalable. So I think this is a really good um, addition to the general topic that we've been having on data contracts and that it will provide a lot of food for thought. So let's go ahead and jump in. Extended summary for episode 131, Making the Data Quantum Leap, starting from the data quantum at PayPal, which is an interview with Jean-Georges Perrin, who was also called JGP. So in this episode, I interviewed JGP, an intelligence platform lead at PayPal. JGP is probably the first guest to really lean into using data quantum instead of data product (laughs) when talking about kind of what is the actual manifestation of what we're sharing. Um, and so I appreciate that. It made it even just that one little thing kind of made the conversation start off in a bit of a different direction. But JGP started the conversation talking about how in his team, he's really leaning into the idea that software engineering and data engineering are not that different, right? Jamak has discussed this too. We need to figure out how we focus on sharing the practices so we all create better software and, and infrastructure and that we don't try and keep them overly separate. And for JGP, data engineering work in most organizations has followed a very waterfall-type approach. However, his team has mostly been working more of an agile. Therefore, it wasn't a huge switch to their own ways of working like it will be at many organizations once they they started doing data mesh, right? Be cognizant that's an additional cognitive load on your data engineering teams as they change the way that they work. Um, And luckily, at PayPal, there was already an appetite for changing the way they were tackling data challenges. So it kind of worked well for them in a lot of ways. In the spirit of being agile and capital A agile as well, PayPal set out on their data mesh journey. They wanted to do an MVP, but what was the P? You know, minimum viable what? Was that the data product or quantum? Was that minimum viable platform? Both minimum viable mesh? JGP recommends looking at what you want to deliver as a minimum unit of value. PayPal already had extensive data platform expertise, so they were able to focus a bit more on delivering the the data products or or quanta, which is the plural of data quantum. But they worked in parallel as well to build out their initial quantum and and mesh capabilities. As many guests have noticed, it's dangerous to only do a minimum viable data product, right? It's it's dangerous to do that because you're not building out the, the platform. And it's also kind of dangerous to build your platform way ahead of your needs because you don't really know what those needs are until it's been battle tested, right? So um, compared to their existing self-serve 
uh, platforms, Data Mesh offered a path to faster and easier data discovery, to making it easier to use data in a governed way, and to increase trust in data by their data consumers. Their first data consumers at PayPal are all data scientists. So a big benefit of addressing all these needs is those data scientists are better able to tell if the data they access is the right data for their use case. This is something that comes up a lot of not just is the data right, but is it the right data, <laughs> right? And getting to a quick answer of is is this actually about what I think it's about and is it what I care about quickly, that that's really, really, you know, high value for a lot of people because you don't waste a lot of cycles trying to clean the data and bring it into your use case and then you find out it's not the right thing. So one thing JGP emphasized that's significantly helping PayPal move forward is standardizing their APIs across their data quantum, right? Those are not the data access or analytical APIs as, as a lot of other guests have talked about. As JGP thinks, analytical APIs will just never work all that well, you know, maybe at all, right? Instead, as their audience is uh, data scientists only, again, to start, you know, everything anyone needs other than the actual ones and zeros of the data is accessible via API and a standardized API that's the same across every data quant. So they've got, you know, kind of the discovery, you know, metadata, the observability and trust data, the data contracts, they've got um, the control plane, all of that. It, all the information that you would need to understand about a data product and, and find it, they can access via APIs. And that's working very well. Um, and then the data scientists just kind of put it all into notebooks because they love notebooks. <laughs> um, and that, again, that standard API means that data consumers don't have to learn a new interface for every single data product that they're, or data quanta that they're, they're working with, right? Uh, this is actually similar in concept to what many are doing with data marketplaces. One standardized way to interact with the information about the data products, the data PayPal is using the, the term data product and data quantum as two actually quite separate things. A data product is simply a product powered by data and analytics. They've had those for quite some time, right? They've been doing that for a long time. And a lot of their data products, even now that are going live, are not powered, are not backed by a data quantum. But PayPal is looking at the, these data quanta like sidecars used specifically to power more and more of their data products going forward. because they understand that there's like this life cycle and the data product having a life cycle when you are kind of serving it without something that is a product in and of itself, it becomes difficult to manage that life cycle because you're not managing the upstream like an actual product. So with the, the data quantum, you can do that. PayPal have invested heavily in making data contracts work as well, you know, according to JGP. And Earlier, uh, PayPal guest, also Jay Sen, said that as well. <laughs> They've been building APIs to make it far easier to consume the data contracts as people are trying to learn more about a data quantum. And as mentioned before, they can consume the observability metrics via API as well, right? So it's not just learning and discovery. It's, it's like, okay, I'm going to go in here and, and figure out <laughs> what, what are they saying they're going to adhere to and are they hitting those, those SLAs? Uh, when asked about how they are, you know, how are they setting their actual contract terms? The data producers initially put out these con contractual terms and they may adjust those as data consumers request, but they're putting them as kind of 
not too strict, right? You want to not box yourself in and say, we're going to keep this updated on a five-minute basis. And then you go out and you're talking to your users and they're still expecting you to do it on a five-minute basis because you said so. But all their use cases really only require it to do every day. You know, have you are you going to do a, a breaking SLA change and say, no, we're actually only going to do it daily. And then, you know, you just can set yourself up in, in a bad place. So think about going out. If you are going to set your contract terms w- without first talking to a user, Set them pretty broadly, pretty easy to hit. So JGP made the good and often unspoken point. The term domain has kind of lost a lot of its meaning. It can mean a very high level domain like marketing or finance or sales or HR. Even in, in, I worked in a software company and a domain in that would have been product, right? And there was like a third of the company in that. So we really have to get kind of specific about what this means and, and, JGP and their data mesh implementation, they're being quite strict about what they mean for a domain and data mesh. It's that kind of small scale subdomain. Think about the two pizza team size, if you've heard of, of that analogy, right? Like how many, how you should only have a team that's as big as can be fed by two pizzas, right? For a meal. And they are also enforcing a strict one-to-one relationship on one data quantum per domain course, not, you know, cross domain source data quanta as well, but that one domain or that one quantum per domain means that they don't have to really think about how big should this be? You know, how many should we have? They can just add more and more to it as more and more data sets are requested. I think this could become an anti-pattern in the long run, especially at companies that where you're (laughs) Your domains are going to be a much larger number of people, but I think it's an interesting thing, and I'm I'm really excited to see how how it goes for them because it is different than uh, the way a lot of people are looking at. So JGP wrapped up in sharing, you know, how he's seeing that tooling really needs to evolve, so we don't have to think such you know about such a hard wall between analytical and operational. And I know. All these people are like, analytical and operational don't exist. They're, you know, or analytical and operational data don't exist, but workloads do and all this stuff. You know, there will always be those workloads, but our systems can evolve to support both in the same place. So we don't have to keep moving things all around and have uh, all these kind of uh, extra difficulties from that. But we aren't there yet. (laughs) Hopefully we can get there. Um, And then one quick tidbit that I thought was just an interesting little thing that JGP said was, if you were just delivering data, you know, the ones and uh, zeros, you are not delivering the necessary trust to actually use that data. Really think about how you're delivering trust when you're delivering information and not just delivering ones and zeros. So I think you'll enjoy this episode when it comes out later this week. Hopefully it sounds like some awesome episodes for you coming up this week. As a reminder, feel free to get in touch if I might be useful in your data mesh journey, helping quite a few organizations and introducing people to each other, plus doing some roundtables. Check out datameshunderstanding.com for more information. I hope you have a great rest of your day and week. Now on to that fun, funky little outro music.